Hello, welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Tonight, I'm with Noah, Shayra, and Garrett, and we'll be discussing the 2013 film Coherence. Written and directed by James Ward Burkett, this film centers on eight friends going to a dinner party when a comet is approaching the Earth. Now, some expository dialogue reveals that strange things have happened in the past when comets drop by, such as a woman not knowing her husband because she killed him the night before. And when the power goes out, the characters notice that one house, two blocks away, still has power. They soon discover that the house is populated by their own doppelgangers, and what proceeds is a plot so complex that you need a scorecard to figure everything out. Uh, now, the film devotes some time to providing a scientific explanation for this phenomenon. One reading of quantum theory, the many-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, popularized by Hugh Everett, contends that for every observable, that is, any event that can be measured, an alternate universe exists in which a different outcome occurs. So if I roll a die, six realities corresponding to the six sides uh, also exist. There's another universe in which I wore a different tie tonight, and those universes exist simultaneously in a quantum state. Quantum mechanics contend that there are multiple quantum realities stacked on top of each other that follow the same basic rules. So while there's a reality in which Noah wears a different shirt tonight, there isn't another reality in which Noah can fly. In order to demonstrate this, the film relies on the classic Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, which states that if I put a cat in a box with a vial of poison and uh, yeah, the poison is connected to something that is determined by a quantum experiment, then uh, traditional physics would say that the cat is either alive or dead, independent of my observation, independent of me opening the box. Uh, quantum physics would state that the two realities, the cat being alive because he didn't drink the poison or didn't the poison didn't explode in the box with him, rather, and or the cat being dead because the poison exploded in the box or because, you know, he's dead because he suffocated inside the fucking box. Uh, they have equal probability of occurring, and those realities only cohere when I open the box and discover the state of my cat. Now, obviously, science fiction writers have jumped on the theoretical this theoretical possibility for fiction. Even the Marvel Universe is rumored to introduce the multiverse in Phase 4, while physicists basically state that the many worlds interpretation can't be reliably tested by the scientific method. Any theory that contends that all things are possible can't really be disproven. But in the realm of fiction, in the realm of stories like Coherence, most of these stories about the multiverse are actually really about choice. They're really about identity, the act of choosing, how one small decision uh, might might be the difference between a happy and a sad life. 
and who we are as people. Think of sliding doors, uh, which is mentioned in Coherence. And in this film, Emily, our protagonist, deliberately chooses the life she wants to live at the end, the circumstances under which she wants to exist. So over the next two hours, approximately, we're going to be exploring some of these questions. We're going to be reviewing the film. We'll be spoiling it. So uh, if you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie. Come back and watch the rest of this. And uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about the end first. Uh, we're going to talk about the the final conclusion, which Emily decides to essentially kill an alternate version of herself because the alternate version is living a, a better life and having a better night. Uh, what about you, my, my, my lovely colleagues? Would you kill yourself, an alternate version of yourself, just because he was having a better night? Can I kill anyone else but me? Because that seems like a better option. Like, there are other people that I'd probably want to kill in that in the course of the evening probably not myself i'd probably have like a stoic attitude about everything i'd be the noah that just chills on the couch gets drunk and says i'm just gonna watch all you guys run around and freak out like legitimately like i i feel like wanting to alter the actions of all possible noahs would be like the key to a multiplicity of problems like at a certain point i think in the movie when you understand i think it's right at the point where the party or I shouldn't say the party because there's multiple people from different houses in the party. But once you, as a part of the party, let's say you're M, and this I think happens with M, once you understand that it's more than another house, that it's more than two houses, and that there are, I mean, what is it, five million different possibilities, although I think there's an error in that. Once you assume there's an infinite number of possibilities, um, I just acquiesce to the fates and just chill, and, you know, at the end of the movie, it seems as though M looks for a world in which everyone does that. She sees the appeal of that, and I feel like at a certain point it would just be a bad idea to try and do anything. Uh, so I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do a damn thing. I would just chill, get drunk, hang out, play some Scrabble, you know, uh, it, basic white boy shit like that. Just chill, drink wine, and play Scrabble. That's what I would do. Why does it not surprise me in the least that Noah would adopt the Amor Fati attitude to everything in this context? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I also would have a different reaction. Uh, um, I, I think the film does a good job of explaining why that character does what she does and sort of uh, uh, the, the collective inertia of it all uh, sort of, it, it coheres, if you will. Um, but personally, I yeah, it, it would be the scientist in me, or you know, maybe the scientist. I'm not a scientist, but it would be the the scientific spirit in me that would want to. You know, this is a chance to learn some shit. You know, I would I would just sort of walk into the other house and say, "Hi, yeah, um, I'm from another house. You're me. I'm you. Uh, this is weird. Let's uh, see where this goes." You know, rather than presenting, I, rather than being a threat or being you know perceived as a threat, I would just be like a. There's some weird quantum shit going on here, and you and I are basically the same person, but we're starting to diverge as we suddenly make different things. Let's let's hang out for the next 10 years and see how different my uh, the me-me is versus the parallel me is uh, and see what this can teach us about human nature, about about uh, you know the influence of genetics versus the influence of random chance and so forth. And I would want to see how that plays out. Now, obviously, that would have been a very different film, and I'm not saying that they should have made that film instead of this one, but that's where my instincts would lay. Okay, I'll, I'll say what I'll say. My, <laughs> I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say mine. I would probably go fuck myself. I'm not even joking, though. <laughs> I probably would. <laughs> I 
I wouldn't kill myself. <laughs> but, you know, it, it'd be interesting. It, it, curiosities would, would come to play. So that's where my mind goes. <laughs> I know that's not the famous answer, though. That you were it's amazing that, that, that I hadn't thought of that before. Like, oh, yeah, what, this is a thing I can do. Um, I, I would make jokes to my husband. I'd be like, hey, Daniel, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and he'd be like, okay. <laughs> it would just be hilarious. There, to be fair, this has happened or has been intimated in happening in a different show. In Doctor Who, of all shows, there is a, a scene where the master, villain, right, uh, is in one reality, in one time frame, a, a male, and in another, a female. And because it's a time travel show, they meet. And, of course, there's this joke, I guess, where the master whispers in her ear, the male whispers in her ear, and she goes, Oh my, like she makes some like joke and they know what each other's thinking. He's like, should we? And they're like, oh my. So I, you're, it's not original. And Shayra, I think you should go for it. By the way, is it wrong that I... Yes, very. Just go for it. Yeah, um, let's uh, let's sort of talk about this uh, this plot and this this movie. So, sort of in a genre way first. Um, I mean, I think as I was watching the film, and Noah, you brought this up a little bit uh, in our off-screen conversations about whether or not this is a horror film, and certainly the idea of uh, Garrett and Garrett sitting around philosophizing and and doing thought experiments that's so on brand by the way and Shayra, you know having it away with herself and noah sitting around playing scrabble uh you know look those are those are certainly non-horror uh elements or non-horror plot lines that follow from the same basic story but is this coherent as it's told is this a horror film could this be considered a horror film um, especially with the sort of dramatic and violent, uh, presumably violent turns that it takes in the end. Well, we've we've clearly discovered that it's both a sci-fi film and a porno. Um, so uh, yeah, I I think I think it can be. You know, we in our podcast have a very loose definition of horror. We've done The Lobster. We've done films that we can sort of. Ar- I, I think this could be argued it, it it is in part a horror film in the sense that it is possible it's intimated that um and in fact i thought this was going to happen in coherence with mike that um you can sort of die via your replicants right there's a sense in which that's a real possibility uh br- reminded me a little bit of something like the invasion of the body snatchers there were times in this movie where i was like is that the same mike is that once i started understanding what was going on i started getting really skeptical and I think once you start getting skeptical that people are being replaced, you open the door to not just replication, but death, removal, right? There's there's that same sort of fear, I'll call it Shayra's fear, uh, the same sort of fear that's there in some of these other films that we've done. So I would definitely classify this as, as in part a horror movie. If they reacted differently, it wouldn't be. But the way that they behaved, their psyche and the way that they behaved is what I think made it horror. It didn't have to be. It just became that. Yeah, I think that, you know, if you if you look at it plot wise and, and tonally and so forth, I don't think it's really a horror movie at all. I mean, again, maybe a little bit at the end when she, you know, when 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 actual murder happens. But even that's you know pretty tail ending. I think it's it's pretty clearly a sci fi uh, uh, film in its, its overall construction. 
But thematically, philosophically, I think they they deal with a lot of stuff which can fairly be classified classified as existential horror. There's this overarching questions about like, you know, who am I? Am I the real me? Am I authentically me? Is this person I'm with really my wife or are they someone just slightly different than my wife? I think when we talked about, uh, as I recall, when we, t- we, we talked about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I brought up uh, uh, a Capgras syndrome, which is when your your uh, your your facial recognition part of your brain is perfectly uh, uh, functional, but the emotional association part of your brain gets broken. So you look at someone that you love and you don't feel the love, even though they look the same. So you come to the conclusion, this person is not my husband. This person is not my wife. And so, yeah, th- that came up in my mind again, too, uh, when watching this. Um, and then, of course, there's also, you know, once you get towards the end you start realizing there's there's effectively an infinite array of us is it starts from a question of significance right do i even matter you know if i were to die right now and there's five million other me's out there would it really make a difference i mean you know if i if i'm the only me and i die you can say well i'm precious i'm special um uh, i'm the only me that there ever is so something unique has been taken out of the world but if i'm one of five million or more me's then I'm all the more insignificant for being just one of many. And, and that's a pretty scary thing to kind of contemplate. Uh, I the, the film, I think, you know, sort of uh, artfully deals with these things a little bit more, a little indirectly. They bring them up here and there. They see it throughout. They don't necessarily dwell on, on these aspects. Uh, but it's, it's present enough to make it, uh, to, to, to put the ideas, I think, in the audience's mind. And yeah, I, I, on this basis, I think it's fair to call it an existential horror film. Yeah, there's also that really great i mean it's one of the few scenes that i thought was really really well done and it was when she's going into the car to get her ring and she comes out and she sees her husband and then slowly they both realize that they're not they're they're not matched for each other like they're not from the same world and it's one of these great it's it's really good acting on the part of of those two those two actors and i think that that's the moment when uh some of the horror elements of this this thing came uh came to the fore because i think that that i mean it's the the syndrome you were just capgrass is that right capgrass syndrome yeah that uh that capgrass syndrome is certainly a, I mean, that's a terrifying idea and a terrifying affliction, um, at least for me. I can't imagine uh, feeling that. But yeah, that's one of the moments where it, it, it was truly horror. There are a lot of moments in this film where it's kind of living room drama and living room, uh, you know, sort of a soap opera between all of these characters and all that. So um, that sort of segues into the next next sort of topic. How does this contrast with uh, last week's living room horror, The Invitation. Um, I think these films are, I, I, it's interesting to pair them, pair them. You know, we talked about that last week. We've got, we talked about The Invitation this week. We talk about uh, um, the uh, coherence this week. And in both cases, it almost seems as it's dealing with hell is other people. Hell is our friends and the secrets we hold from each other and and the the hidden violence um, uh, that we uh, that that we are hiding from those who are purportedly the closest to us. So first off, I want to say that down here in the South, we refer to Capgrass syndrome as like shooting your lawn. That's one. That's what we refer to it as. Secondly, I think the invitation is. Like, I, I think it starts it's with a second to get that. No, that's uh, uh, yeah. that's a solid pun. Yeah, I was just I, I was letting that sit. Just Shay, I saw Shay. I was like, uh, I I think 
I think the invitation starts with a fundamentally powerful part of the human experience first, the idea of grief and trauma, and then it works its way out from there, right? And I think coherence is kind of the opposite. Coherence seems to start with elements of science and philosophy first, Schrodinger's cat, uh, the quantum world, uh, the observer effect. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It's I, I have in my notes, it's almost like the difference between continental philosophy and analytic philosophy. Like there is a very there, there's a, a me portion, an existential portion, what I get, what I feel from being around my friends, the distrust. There's this rub of the existential in the invitation. And it's very analytic and coherence. It's very sciencey. It's very ma- I, I felt like coherence was solving a math problem when I was watching it. And it was the complete opposite for the invitation. The invitation felt um, that it started with sort of a different, a very different aim. I mean, they clearly are both about friends having dinner, and there's some there's some similar overlap with social mores. And um, can you really ever trust anybody? There's certainly some some of that there. Like in every possible, what is it? In every possible world, I fucked your wife or something. Best line in any film ever, ever. Ever. That is the greatest line in cinema, other than fuck you from Session 9, uh, a la Garrett. But yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, think, I think that's the difference. I think one feels more mathematical, analytical, and the other seems more existential. So I, the thing that is very interesting about Coherence is um, the fact that they didn't actually have a written out script. So this was just actual friends hanging out and talking and kind of you know, bouncing each other's ideas off of each other. And so it comes across as a lot more real than invitation, uh, just in the way that they speak to each other. But um, I found that the other thing is, is when they're talking about these concepts, it's not overly scientific because it's actually these friends talking about this basic concept and then just spitting stuff out that that comes off the top of their head. Um, And it just, it kind of reminds me of, actual conversations I've had with my friends in I'm in my 30s like these people I sit around at dinner parties and drink with friends I did that last night um and we start talking about just little random things and start shouting over each other occasionally or talking over each other and and just some of it's stupid (laughs) some of it's smart and some of it's just uh shooting the shit or or just being freaked out about something or whatever. We just talk about whatever. It felt so much more real because of that. Um, But it did have its shortcomings in that it was hard to focus on who was talking and what exactly they're trying to make as their theme or what they're trying to push forward. So there was elements of reality to it, but it was also a lot more confusing and a lot more convoluted because of that. I don't know if I consider it a strength or a weakness in my mind. Uh, I actually have not seen the invitation, so I cannot comment on the comparison between the two, but I will comment on some of the comments that have been made about sort of the the, the social nature of it, uh, of at least a good chunk of the film. Um, if the film, I think, had been executed better, and again, that's not necessarily a critique, I think the film overall is executed quite well, um, but there's a, a fairly long stretch at the beginning in particular where you know that things are trying to be set up and you know that, that, that the, the relationships, the themes and so forth are, are, are trying to, they're trying to sort of lay the groundwork for it. Uh, and so if you're already particularly engaged, if you're already hooked, if you already know this is going to go somewhere interesting, you're, 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 you're in there, you're paying close attention. 
Um, but if you aren't, you know, the film doesn't really do a terribly good job of grabbing you at the outset. It doesn't it, it doesn't sort of draw you in and make you think, oh, what's going on here? Uh, and I think, you know, if, if you were to give another pass to the screenplay or, or maybe maybe an editor or something like that, you, you would try to make some changes to, to to get the hooks in earlier on. I mean, the, the closest thing I think there is to a hook is this idea that, that her uh, M's phone breaks for no apparent reason. Oh, isn't that weird? I mean, OK, that's that's not nothing, but that's not a lot. Uh, so while I think all this sort of social stuff is necessary, you need to see these people interact as friends. You need to have them talking about some weird, you know, weird phenomena on the comet and so forth, which obviously is just the, uh, uh, you know, the device to try to get this rolling. Uh, uh, those things need to be set up. At, uh, uh, I wish that they had seeded that uh, that social material a little bit more with something that would have uh, sort of drawn us in more, intrigued us more, um, alluded to maybe not just thematically and conceptually to to what's going to be happening later on, uh, uh, but in some way give us a, a little bit more sense for the uncanny weirdness, which ultimately does settle in. Uh, and if, if that had been foreshadowed better, I think the, the, the film overall, uh, it, it, you, you could have had both at the same time. You could have had that, that social living room drama stuff and at the same time have an element of of the bizarre, the peculiar, the otherworldly, which eventually the film does settle into. Which is actually, which is actually, Garrett, how the invitation is distinguished, because that happens in the invitation. There is an immediate foreshadowing of what's going to happen at this dinner, and there is immediate distrust and questions about why this dinner is even happening. And by the time the people arrive at the at the you know, at the dinner in the invitation, you're already skeptical. There's already intrigue. There's already, there's something wrong. There's something off. And the film does a good job of n navigating you to figure out what that is. And I felt like that was missing in, um, in this film. But I, I do also kind of want to forgive coherence because it's $50,000 budget. It's mumblecore, you know, it, it very similar to creep. Uh, a lot of it is, I mean, most of it is improvised. Most of the dialogue is improvised. Um, I, I, you're hard pressed to think of a fifty thousand dollar movie that would would come out looking this this polished. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, the things like that, I'm more apt to forgive, uh, just because of the budget, you know. And it's got one of the characters from Buffy in it, which is pretty cool. For for the budget, yeah, this is an incredibly well made film. Uh, yeah, for 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 spending such a such a little amount, not only does it look and feel great, it's it, it, you know it, it's it's clearly an indie film. It has a texture of an indie film, but at no point does it feel cheap. At no point does it feel like they they made decisions based around the budget rather than having a natural story that sort of carries it forward. And I, I think that's definitely to the film's credit. That having been said, the changes I have in mind are scriptural changes and editing changes, and that's not something that takes a whole lot of money. Uh, uh, so while I definitely you know, think that they've, they've done impressive things with uh, with their limitations, uh, I still think that there's 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 improvements that could be made even within those limitations. Yeah, I think part of the problem that you're posing, Garrett, has a lot to do with the fact that many of the dramas that are interpersonal, many of the dramas that don't necessarily grab you are because they're relatively soap opera character moments, that they're not actually uh, substantive issues where you know that a character is going to the dinner party for a particular aim. And the, the dramatic question is whether or not he or she accomplishes that particular aim. Um, so like if M walked in and her entire purpose for being at the dinner party was to seek advice from Beth about whether or not she should go on the trip with Kevin, then that would be a particular aim. If Mike had just fucked, uh, Hugh's wife and his entire idea was, 
okay, I'm going to uh, hide this from Hugh, but it's possible that Lori might, whatever, you know. And so instead we get some of these, the, the dramas that are presented to us, the dramatic questions that are presented to us aren't all that unique and aren't all that uh compelling and it quickly gets overtaken by the spooky elements that you were talking about about how a phone randomly uh you know phone randomly cracks and on and on and on so like in a way it's hard to uh follow the conflict of these characters and it's hard to really get into what is going on between these people um i, I mean i guess I, I guess you can't do too much um, in the first 15 minutes of your movie because you also have to set up a lot of the sciencey shit that is going to have to pay off. But uh, as it is, this is this was certainly not enough to get me invested in these characters. Um, I guess the question is, is did the rest of you have the same reaction or um, and how would you change it? How would you fix this if you were in the writer's room? I think I would create more fundamental discrepancies between the expectations we have of the characters and then who they actually are. So so maybe uh, Beth would be gay in some possible world. Mike would be more conservative about taking his girlfriend traveling to Thailand with him, right? Like I would underscore major distinctions between the various possible worlds so as to explore M's navigation and us our navigation as viewers into those different realities. You know, I, I didn't, I felt like there was just too much subtlety in the way that this was explored. Like there's a legitimate kind of horror to the idea that, you know, you could have entered an entirely different world ensemble, a different world apparatus in which um, you are a completely different thing than you are now. And these characters you know, for the most part, didn't elicit that. Like, they're so similar in so many other respects, even with their differences, that, like, the gravitas of what's gained or lost by those differences seemed absent to me. They didn't seem to matter that much. And, I like, we, we talked about what we would do. Like, I, if I was in this world, like, I... I want to know what gay Noah does, right? Like, I, I want to know what fear flying Noah does. I want to know what, uh, you know, I need to get married and have kids ASAP Noah does. I, I, I want, like, the multiple Noahs to be so differentiated by these sort of monumental existential uh, decisions, differences, that, you know, one of those, uh, you know, one of those, like, these fears become relevant, that, that the gap between who I am now and what could be is so major that it provides like uh, no safety net as I'm exploring these different worlds. You know what I mean? I, I just wanted more existential gravitas. So I would I would basically cash that out by having the characters uh, be be much more differentiated from the other versions of themselves than they are in the movie. I agree that that's probably a better movie, but within the science that this film presents, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, within the science that this film is playing with, the schism happens that night. So that is that unless Noah becomes gay, but that can't be that true. Night. That can't that can't be true because um, when uh, uh, the, 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 the girlfriend, when she enters the home, uh, uh, the the one who is now with uh, Lori. Lori. Her name's when, Lori, yeah, yeah, Lori. When she enters, but I don't I mean let's make sure we all got this. When Lori enters the house, 
the first time she enters, the first instance we see her, that's not the same Lori that they, that's not their world Lori. She's gone through the dark thing, the darkness, because when she's talking to Mike, she basically says, you know, oh yeah, I love, I didn't do yoga. He's like, didn't you do yoga? She's like, what are you talking about? I didn't do yoga. Secondly, her, one of her favorite shows is Roswell and she doesn't even recognize Mike from Roswell. So it can't be that the differences happen that night because Lori has character differences from before that evening. So the I'm schism, the schism doesn't happen that night. So when does the schism happen? I mean, this is part of the thing that I think the the film needs to do a better job of its world building because on the one hand, it is telling us in the line that you quoted earlier, if there are a thousand different realities, then I fucked your wife in every one of those realities. That seems to apply that the schism happened that night. But if what you say is true, that it's not just Lori being dumb, then when did the schism happen? And is it another Lori from another? So does that mean that this, that Amir is from a different reality as well? Correct. Um, I mean, these things are, but the problem is, is that I don't think that there's a definitive answer in the film though, right? I mean, Am I the only one who read it, it that the schism happens that night? I, I also read it that way, and I agree that there's, a, at a minimum, an inconsistency here that should be cleared up, uh, and it is it is not a gaping hole in the film, but certainly a problem. Uh, I just want to comment, though, with something that we're sort of uh, uh, noting. Um, you know, in in the, the, the very first world we enter, the first house we enter, uh, Nicholas Brendan's character was the star of Roswell, uh, which he says lasted for four seasons. He played the character of Max. Uh, the, the character of Max was, in fact, played by a different actor in our world. So that right there almost sets up that this is a parallel universe in which, which not Nicholas Brendan, but the character he's playing, was actually cast in Roswell. Uh, and the, the actual actor who did play Max in Roswell, Jason Bear, had a guest spot on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which also starred Nicholas Brendan. So this is just these little fun little connections uh, that, you know, when you go back and dig a little research around, uh, it's fun to find. But I want to come back to, to uh, Jim, to your original question. How would I change it? Uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, who's watched my criticisms knows that for me, I'm very much a script-first kind of uh, uh, moviegoer and film critic. For me, if the, if the screenplay works, I will forgive a lot of other problems. And if the screenplay doesn't work, it, it, gets, for, it gets in the way for me, for, uh, even if a lot of other things go well. And this is, a, you know, a, yeah, I th I've thought about, yeah, if I were reworking this film, what would I change? And I think it's a very difficult film to change for precisely some of the reasons that we're encountering here in our discussion. And that's, it, it, you know, it, the, the film as it is more or less coheres. And if you start changing elements, then you throw other things off. So you could make a change here that might improve this local area, but then that would require other changes elsewhere. And it's hard to balance that all out. Um, so... Uh, Again, that means I'm going to give a lot of leeway to to the, the, the errors that I see because I do think it would be hard to, to mix this up. Case in point, one way which you could do that beginning sequence different, kind of like what you were suggesting, Noah, but uh, uh, borrow a page from Triangle. You know, in Triangle, the first the character shows up and you know something is off. You can tell she's upset. You can tell she's thrown off. The rest of the characters don't know why and the audience doesn't know why. And, you know, once you get to the end of the film, you realize it's because she's done this whole loop before. She's coming back to this. She knows exactly what's going to happen. And that reveal at the end really makes you, you know, when you triangle the film, you have to watch more than once. You go back and watch it again uh, and it you, 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 you see it from a completely different point of view. You could do that in this film, but that would change. A, it would be a little cheap. Again, it would be, I, I feel it would be, I've seen that device before. And one of the things I think this film does well is it avoids a lot of plot 
device cliches quite nicely. Um, so if it had done that, it might have been a little more engaging, but it easily could have fallen into cliche. Uh, uh, it would have been not impossible to pull off, but I think hard to pull off a move like that without feeling derivative, without feeling like it was stealing from a film like Triangle, which executed it very, very well. Um, so I get, I can imagine ways in which I would be curious to see, you know, if they'd done it this way instead, if one of the characters knew the whole time what was going on, uh, and was plotting something and had, had, you know, was, uh, wasn't like everyone else, you know, uh, from, maybe from one of the other houses, maybe this is the, 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 the 50th time they've gone through this or something like that, that could add new levels of drama and tension, uh, and, 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 and more paranoia and suspicion and all that could work. But it easily also could fail and and seem uh, uh, redundant or, or or derivative or something like that. So so yeah, I I'm tempted to say I wouldn't want to change too much about the screenplay of this film, uh, in spite of the fact I think there are flaws because it's hard hard to pull that off well. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And the other, I'm so glad someone brought up Triangle. I was going to do it too. I it you know the other thing that Triangle does is uh, that I would have liked in this movie is that again it gave it that thing that I'm always looking for in a horror film. It gave it a, more of an existential rub. It 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 it's centered on a character and the, and their struggle, right? And in this, I was looking for something like that from one of the characters, even from M. I I just didn't feel. Like there was any, I just couldn't connect. There was not, there was no gravitas. There was no weight. There was no push for me to be as emotionally invested in one or all of these characters as I was in in Triangle or another film that I think is similar in some respects, which is another Earth, um, which is you know shares some similarities to this. Uh, so so I in in this I, I felt like just give me something, give me a little more time maybe with M or. Or a, a little less mumble Korean uh, interaction, and actually have something scripted to make us feel a little more connected to one or more of the characters. And I would have been—I I, I think it, it would have connected me a little more to the movie. The other thing I want to go back to is Jim, your the the famous line from Mike in this that um you know in all in in every in every single reality I, I fucked your wife, the, the greatest line in movie history. I think the more I think about it, um the reason he says that like. The fact that he's the fact that he would say that. So let me let me figure out how I want to say this. Like the fact that that's a statement from him shows that it's possible in that world that he couldn't that that it's the sort of world in which prior events could be changed, right? So so I think it's more of a slight and insult, but it's more of a like a, a firm commitment on Mike's part that I have an answer to this and I'm pretty sure in every world I fucked your wife. But saying that implies that there could be possible worlds where other things go different, where he didn't. Like in other words, it's it's if it were really that obvious that every the schism happened that night, he wouldn't have to say that line. I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, so to me, the, the, the film heavily implies a differentiation prior to that night where characters have had different world experiences. I mean, I felt like that was a central part of this movie. It seems to be a big difference we're having here. Um, and I'm wondering how much of the film changes because we see them that way. Yeah, I saw it as the the reason I saw it the way I did is because that's how the science presented in the film makes sense. So if the science presented in the film is what they say it is, and that is that there are different quantum realities and that just because of this comet, we are able to uh, access those different quantum realities, then that would mean that 
those quantum realities are the ones that are being created at that at that moment that and and even we, we see this on Hugh's phone now these calculations are are really wrong but when he makes the calculations that there are 5 million uh, plus quantum realities he is doing the math of eight people times three types of glow sticks times uh, there's there's one other multiple going on there and he figures out that there are five million possible quantum realities but uh, that doesn't make sense because they make thousands of decisions that night and based upon the science that they're presenting Unto near infinite numbers of realities would be created that night, not just how many glow sticks we have. Uh, so I, I don't go ahead, Garrett. You might be able to correct some of the science. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. I no, tried to do I, I some. Think all, just a quick apology for the film. The, the, the number he's calculating there, I think, isn't the total number of universes. It's the number of variables that they have given the the, the dice the colors um, and and then the the, uh, the whatever other sort of elements they have when you when you run the math just on those things Eight because people, at that point, six dice and then three yeah because right, remember they're, all they're trying to do in that scene is is give them an identification to make sure that make specifically identifies them versus people in another house uh, so again there there could be infinite number of people who match up with the numbers uh, but there will be at least you know five million whatever where there'll be a difference so that that gives you some ability to tell whether or not you're uh, uh, in the uh, with your original house or with your proper set of people than others I don't think the film film or the character was thinking that they were calculating the total number of possible houses I find a problem with that though still because, there could be a house where they didn't use glow sticks at all. There could be a house where they just decided to stab each other in the face for no reason and kill each other all at once. I don't know. Like, if there's that many possibilities, but, I mean, there's even one where they just sat around in the house. Like, that's where she ends up, right? They didn't even have any glow sticks and they were just chilling. So, uh, doing a Noah is what I'll start calling that. Yeah, the Amorphati house. The Amorphati house. Yes. <laughs> But if that's the case, then again, uh, they don't need to worry about them either, right? You know, if someone shows up and they don't have a glow stick, well, then they're clearly not from this house where we did have a glow stick. You know, if all you're thinking from a functional point of view, if you're that character in that position, is we want to make sure we know who we are and how we relate to these people versus the uh, the you know intruders, the replacements, the others, whatever. Uh, you, you, that's all you need. You don't need a uh, an exhaustive calculation. You just need something that's going to make it very, very unlikely that a random person you're going to run into just happen to have your exact same number and the exact same color, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that we're running into is we get different interpretations of what's going on. At one point, M says that as soon as you go into the darkness, you end up in a roulette wheel and you end up in any possible reality. Well, if the calculations on Hughes' uh, phone are correct, and there are at least five million possibilities, and obviously we can add to that and say that there are near infinite numbers of possibilities, then once a character travels through the darkness, the odds are astronomical that he or she would return to the same reality. It's impossible to go back to your original house. Um, and yet the entire film, they're trying to go back to the original house. Uh, so it seems as though they are forever unable to return to the lives in which they, from which they came. 
Um, is this, I, I mean, are you guys reading this film the same way or are we just well, getting confused by the lazy world, world building in this movie? They didn't know about the multiple things until way later, until it already got scrambled. So I think that at least as far as what they were trying to do at first, uh, was just who are these other people? Are they us? Do we have doppelgangers? Let's go visit them. Ooh, that's weird. Uh, then it turned into, oh shit. <laughs> you know, uh, this, yeah, other we might have messed some dick. stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, here's where I think where some of the interesting existential stuff sort of comes in, right? I mean, one attitude you could take to this is, well, if we can't ever go back to our original house, then just pull a Noah and fuck it and just, we are where we are, let's just roll. Um, I, 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 I kind of wish the film had at least one character that seriously contemplated that that, that, that put that as a live option on the table. You know, that there really is no essential difference between, you know, the, my wife in this universe first, even though she's not technically the same person I was married to in, in my original house, but so what she's close enough. Um, but you, you, you do get this sort of, again, this questionable thing, right? Can we ever sort of go back? You know, we have all these sort of branching decisions, right? You make a decision and you're slightly different because of it. And I think everyone has at least a few decisions in their life that they wish they could get a mulligan on. They wish they could do it over. They wish they could undo that decision and make a slightly different one. And if you want to give the film credit, and I'm inclined to do this, because again, I think the film is, is, is quite good and pulls us off quite nicely. I think you could say that that's sort of deliberately what's at play here. It's at least inviting you to, to sort of think about the fact, yeah, you can't go back to your house in the same way you can't go back to the person you were before you made that decision. You are the person who you are now. And again, Nietzsche explores this all the time, right? About, about how you know, you know, every bad decision that you make leads you to who you are today. So you should embrace that fate, even if it was hurtful, even if it was painful, because without it, you wouldn't be you. And you are someone who's precious and, and unique and singular and awesome. Uh, uh, so you should, you, you should welcome those bad decisions. You should welcome those pain, that, that pain. So even though, again, I don't think, yeah, the film doesn't dive into this as much as it could, I think there's at least a suggestion or a hint of it there that invites you to think about. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think, Garrett, you're, so you're transitioning into what I think is some of the more interesting philosophical questions here. And let's sort of leave some of these plot holes or plot inconsistencies or plot, at least, shall we say, plot confusions aside and just talk about the act of deciding because i think that is if there is a character arc in this film and i think there is it is m's character arc where she starts the film talking about how she doesn't want to make a wrong choice kevin says uh not making a decision is also a decision she tells that story about how she was um not really able to decide whether to take the understudy role or not. And she tergiversated for a while. And then that understudy role went to someone else. And then that person ended up becoming a star. Uh, the, the story between Svetlana and Catherine. And so this whole thing, we're deliberately told at the beginning of this film that this movie is about choices. It's about the act of deciding. And it's about characters being unable and unwilling to uh, make decisions. And of course, M at the end makes a rather drastic decision to murder herself and uh, assume that other person's reality or her reality, shall we say. And you brought up Nietzsche's thought experiment, which is also the plot of Kurt Vonnegut's Timequake, time um, where you have to imagine that the afterlife requires you to watch your entire life over again. You have to make the same mistakes, suffer the same 
consequences, experience the same victories. And, you know, you should live your life as though you would consider this afterlife to be a positive experience. Um, I mean, do you guys think that the the film is saying something coherent about coherent about decision making or like how, how do you sort of respond to the film's existential and Nietzschean themes? So I'll, I'll start by saying I don't think that it is a it's not that drastic a choice to leave the house at the point when M leaves the house. She has full knowledge of that point of what entering the dark spot will do at that specific point in the movie. She's seen enough of the negative outcomes in her reality to know that she doesn't want to be there. So it's not that drastic a thing for her. It's actually a very easy decision to leave. The difficult decision at that point would be for her to stay in her reality. Um, and that is what she doesn't do, right? And she gets punished for it at the end of this movie. The M that stays in the house is the same M that calls Mike, I, I think we're all in agreement, feasibly calls Mike at the end of the film and informs him something to the effect that our M is fraudulent, which is why he looks over at M and M has that look on her face, right? So if you see that movie, if you see calls the ending Kevin, this way. Not Mike. Mike is- I'm Nick, sorry, yeah, you're right, Kevin. Kevin. Kevin is the Kevin, husband. Kevin, there's like the 37. looking guy. Yeah, there's like 37 different characters in here. If you multiply all the the different worlds, there's like 900 characters in it. But yes, uh, but but I think the the important part is that RM, you know, kind of took the easy way out. I think and left when the shit hit the fan. Like she looked for a way to hijack uh, the world of the sort of M who did the harder thing, uh, stay in possibly go to Thailand, right? And and that M gets punished by our M. And I think maybe that's why this is a horror movie in some respects, right? Um, to the to the Nietzschean part, I was thinking like someone call Russ Cole from True Detective. Time is a flat circle. Um, you know, this is this is what I think it, that part is interesting because I think that that is the most central and most fundamental challenge of Nietzsche, the, the Nietzsche, the idea of eternal recurrence, or some people call it the eternal return. Um you know, as depicted in the gay science and thus spoke Zarathustra. And to me, it is like the most life affirming challenge that I know of. And to get personal for a minute, it was it was such a profound question for me at a, at a certain point in my time that it, it served as a bridge for passing over deeply negative and even possibly suicidal ideations for me. Like it was a challenge that got me through a lot of really dark times. Like the challenge to live so genuinely and so hard, so authentically, be so authentically you, that every moment of your life, every trauma, every pleasure, every gray moment, like everything dull, bad, good, all of it, every moment of your existence becomes so deliberately authentic that should a demon confront you and challenge you with the idea of living that same life that you have always lived over and over and over again ad infinitum, that you would gladly say yes to it, right? Like a lot of people characterize that idea from Nietzsche as being a, 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 a metaphysical idea, like a, 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 the idea of eternal return is having like a metaphysical truth to it. I think True Detective does this a little too much. God bless him, even though I love that first season. Um, but it's really an existential challenge about the self and authenticity. And so to bring this back to the movie, let's ask it this way. Do any of the characters get so flustered by the idea of another version of themselves that they act out in what is obviously a, a way of uncomfortability. Like I, and I think there are actually a couple characters that do this. I think this is true of Mike, the, the, the correct Mike, um, Buffy Mike, and M. I think Mike and M are a part of this, right? So Mike, because he's obviously dealing with 
an alternate sober alcoholic Mike. I think that's a pretty big difference. Um, and then M, because she's dealing with an alternative say yes to Thailand, M. Um, so there are definitely versions of these two characters that exist within the realm of making broadly different and existentially powerful decisions. So I, I kind of want to, you know, I, I kind of want to take a step back and maybe look at it that way. Um, so anyway, I hope that I hope that throws Nietzsche into this a little bit in a way that allows you guys a springboard off of it. Yeah, and those two seem to be the most weak-willed of all of the characters. Mike, uh, certainly his reversion into alcoholism and his first thought is that other Mike is prone to violence, uh, which means that he believes himself to be prone to violence. Um, and then M with her obvious lack of um, her obvious inability to make decisions. I think uh, I, I will uh, I will see your personal and raise you raise you personal. Um, yeah, I you know Garrett, you pre presented uh, Nietzsche's thought experiment to me at a uh, particularly difficult time, and my first reaction is that sounds awful. Um, <laughs> that is horrible. That idea, you know, and and I think that has to do with instead of being solely committed to Nietzsche's uh, existentialist point of view, I was, I'm kind of committed to a consequentialist point of view. A, uh, a decision is not just a decision that is good because it's uniquely me. A decision is also good because it gave me beneficial consequences. Like I chose to, you know, I, I don't know what decision I've made so far has been. And that, ah, I I chose to be part of the Deadly Analysis podcast, and that has added a lot to my life. You know, it, it truly has. And so I wouldn't go back and change that decision. However, would I go back and change numerous other decisions in my life because of the consequences? I jumped out of a plane last week and got injured. Uh, or two weeks ago, I, and got injured. Would I change that decision? Fuck yeah, I would. Um, or at least I would change one of the decisions in the the string of events. I probably would still jump out of a plane, but I would stick the landing a little bit better. Um, those those are uh, like, and I I think that th we do have sort of a clash between consequentialism on the one hand, which which evaluates a decision based upon its outcome, and existentialism, which is a decision is good because it's uniquely you. Obviously, we know where Nietzsche stands on this. I can't necessarily stand next to him on that one, though. If you, if you, if anyone that you have talked to answers the challenge of the eternal return by immediately saying that's exciting, they're fucking liars. It is terrifying. It is horrifying, and it is meant to be that way. It is a challenge. It is a mountain to climb. So I am right there with you. It's a terrifying thought, um, and I don't know of anyone who would ever say, "Yay, that's exactly well, that's the point," right? Like that's the point of it. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's unique to you. I think that that's the point of Nietzsche's, uh, of, of the challenge. So uh, there's there's an alternate ending that they could have made with this film. Um, it, it's only slightly different, but it, it runs exactly the same up until the last five minutes or so of the film. Um, and it's something that if you think about it too much, when you start imagining parallel universes, it could, it could drive you insane. And that is the idea that the true measure of life for each of us is the best version of ourself that exists. 
the, the, the happiest, the most flourishing, the, the, the one who does best, because there's always going to be in some parallel universe a version of you that is happier in their career, um, is, is, is happier in their marriage or whatever. And, you know, w when you can start sort of peeking into other realities like M does uh, at the end, you can imagine yourself literally spending the rest of eternity trying to find that optimal you. Uh, because if that's how you measure your life, if you take that sort of you know utilitarian thing that that anything less than that than, than total happiness is a failure, uh, that's not a fair representation of utilitarianism. But I think it's how Nietzsche would present utilitarianism. Um, you you can see exactly why that's a, a, a cosmic hole right there that you fall into. Uh, no one can live up to that standard of. Uh, of you know authenticity or happiness or success or call it what you will uh, because th there's always going to be a version of yourself which you can imagine yourself having done better and so i think that's sort of uh, maybe a back door into to nature's thought experiment here right is is that you know if you if you look back on your life and you see those mistakes that you made i mean you could take the whole well if you correct those mistakes it's going to have ripple effects somewhere else and so you're you're ultimately going to end up back in the same place or the same amount of happiness um and and that's that's a theme that's worth exploring but but the, the, what i'm suggesting here instead uh, it, it isn't that you you could go back and fix uh, and fix those things, uh, and you wouldn't be better off. You, you you very well might be better off. But then there's going to be something else for you to be un dissatisfied with. You know, you 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 fix the career, you're not going to be happy with your friends. You you're happy with your friends, you're not going to be uh, satisfied with uh, you know the 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 uh, I don't know whether or not you had kids or something like that. You know, there's always going to be some part of you that can look back and said, oh, I wish I'd done that instead of doing this. And if you let that consume your life, if you let those regrets eat you up inside, then you're never going to live today, here and now. So, so you, you really want to take Nietzsche's thought experiment, you know, you know uh, seriously, and 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 not uh, uh, shy away with horror. Uh, you, you can just imagine what would happen if you were allowed to change it, if you were allowed to go back and modify things, because that's not going to make you happy. That's not going to fulfill you. If you can't be fulfilled with what you have, then no amount of of changing your decisions is going to to cosmically transform you into a more fulfilled and complete person. You have to be able to accept yourself, all the flaws, all the mistakes that you've made for who you are. I can't I can't agree with that. I think that there are there are legitimately uh, you know I I understand that. Uh, so let's let's sort of inject a yet another existentialist into this. Um, obviously, Woody Allen, uh, because he has to be in, involved in this. And uh, <laughs> that's uh, there's the uh, great line at the end of uh, Midnight in Paris where he says, "No, we're not." <laughs> Owen Wilson says, "No, it's we're not better off in La Belle Epoque or or, or better off in the twenties because." You know, life is disappointing. Everybody's disappointing. These guys wanted to be back with with Mozart and Michelangelo. So it's it's because life is inherently disappointing that, uh, according to to the end of Midnight in Paris, because life is inherently disappointing, you are inherently always going to be disappointed. But your argument makes the assumes that disappointment is is a sort of net like it it's always the same but when there, we know that there are degrees of disappointment i am more disappointed in my decision to uh you know move to evansville than i am in my decision to move to new york you know i like i was i know that 
uh, of the two, I'm e- uh, I've I've had equal bad times in both uh, both places. But I I'm gonna put Evansville as more di- at a at a level nine disappointment in New York at a level four. You know, so I I think that uh, your argument necessarily assumes that all suffering is equal, and I don't think that's true. That's a failure of their imagination on your part, I think, Jim. Uh, uh, it's it's oh, not I have an active imagination. I'll tell you. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, but it, it's not that you're necessarily wrong. I mean, indeed, it's certainly possible that had you know again had you stayed in New York or something like that, you would be happier. I'm not denying that. But there will always be a, you. Know, you will always be able to look back on you know if you were that person, if you if you had stayed in New York and and not gone to Evansville or or however you want to rearrange it. Um, uh, you are going to be in New York and looking at other decisions that you've made with the same level of uh, regret or remorse or so forth. And again, you, you don't imagine yourself doing that because you have the perspective that you currently have in this life, but you will lack that perspective in this parallel universe. And in that parallel universe, you're going to look at the decisions that you've made through the same eyes that you currently have. And you're going to see that you're, you're going to have that same thing. It's just going to be for different sets of decisions. You may be happier in New York, but you wouldn't realize it. All I'm saying is that some, that that it's a, a a an absolute fact that some decisions are better than others. And while we will look back and say, "Oh, I wish I would have done something else," in every possible reality, it's nevertheless true that I would like to change some of the decisions I made. Um, and uh, I don't think that that is that is terribly controversial. But go ahead, Noah. You've been wanting to jump in for a little bit. I was just gonna say, sit back and play some fucking Scrabble, Jim. Just play Scrabble. That's what you need in your life. You is words with friends good enough? Because uh... <laughs> <laughs> need some. Uh, you need some uh, a morfati Scrabble in the Noah house. Uh, what about you, Shara? Do you want to jump in on this uh, this conversation? Do you want to drink from the uh, fountain of regret? <laughs> uh, I've actually had this debate for about two hours with our good friend Meridian Frost. Uh, we ripped into each other's throats over this in a, a past life <laughs> of YouTubing. Um, and it, it was really an interesting discussion. But, you know, he, he had this idea about we all have regrets. I don't. I do not have any fucking regrets. I am happy I made every decision I've ever made, even the bad ones that have led me here. And I've thought about this so many times. If I adjusted any decision, I would not have my husband. I would not have my daughter. I would not have you guys as friends. If I made certain decisions, I would have never had you people. And people are what is the utmost importance to me. My bad decisions led me all to you guys. My trauma has helped me bond with people that are, I'm really close with. I, I would not change a goddamn thing. And on top of that, um, you know, when it comes to like thinking back on the past and, you know, you get that. Uh, there's actually a French term for it when you, you think of a better retort um, when you like leave a little while longer in the future. Escalator. Yes. <laughs> yeah, means, when you get to the yeah. stairs. Right. Yeah. Staircase wit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually like those moments because I always put that in the bank. I'll whip it out another time. It, it's just helping me become more and more witty. And people are like, where'd you come up with that <laughs> in a past life, <laughs> in, a, in a past you know, situation? So um, 
I, I just, I can't live that way. I can't even think that way. And it's, it's one of the things that makes me a horrible friend to get advice from sometimes when people are like, oh, my life is hell. And I'm like, isn't it fucking great? <laughs> and I'm just like, this is how you get where you're going. This is the, the path now that's going to take you to, to, to meet really cool people in your life, to go to a new place, to experience a new thing, to learn about a new food, to learn about new drinks. You're never going to get to those places without making really stupid decisions. And I'm sure that there are some decisions that will lead you to a horrible situation. Like, I don't know, if you die, that would suck. But um, I, whenever I talk about my major fear, right, my major fear has always been to lose my agency. Um, if I tried to go back and change something, that would be a doppelganger. That would lose my agency. I would not be Shayra anymore. And that is fucking terrifying. So I live in my bad decisions and I I'm fine with them. They are fine. I'm in a great place. I'm fine. So, so, so that's uh, the idea that you would go back and fuck yourself makes a lot more sense. Now looking at how you look at, like looking at the way you look at yourself makes a lot more sense. I, I dig it. Uh, uh, Garrett, you'll like this, you know, last week uh, for the invitation, one of the things that we talked about with Jim, and I think I even, I think I even said this to Jim, uh, was Nietzsche's idea of a pain and how to embrace it. And to the point where Nietzsche actually tells his colleagues that I wish upon you suffering and trauma, you know, there's like a letter where he writes this. And uh, so I, was, I, I literally read that to Jim, like, I hope all of these bad things happen to you. And then he broke his back. So yeah. So, I, so it's I, your fault. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, at this point, I'm just, yeah, I'm just, it's your fault. I'm just, well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm just not going to talk. Take it, take it as your, uh, take it as comfort that while you were saying that my back was broken, I just didn't know it. Uh, don't worry, everybody. I'm fine. Thanks for the well wishes. Uh, yeah, I'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, like, it's easy to have no regrets when you're happy with where you are. Uh, when you're basically okay with where you are, it's easy to have no regrets and uh, sort of look back and think that all decisions were were created equal you know it's it's sort of a defining a a current happiness that 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 gives you that perspective i think well yeah and you know on top of that even i've been through hardships and still when i'm going through those hardships i know that i have a chance to make a change or choices to be made or to figure out where I need to go. So a lot of times people will linger in these places that are just toxic instead of saying, all right, I need to move on and start living my life right now, or I need to linger here and, and be, you know, miserable, but I could be miserable if I change places too. You're never going to know until you try. So I, I think I just tend to be the type of person who moves on very easily and, I, I know that's probably a personality thing, too. I don't expect everyone to be like me. Yeah, I mean, these are interesting questions as it uh, relates. And, and we'll all, even our listeners will all sit around at the uh, the uh, phantom carriage and have a drink about uh, the unexperienced outcome, the, uh, the what-ifs. Um, let's uh, sort of transition here a little bit. Uh, let's talk about some of the filmmaking in this movie. Um, We've got, I, I think we've already mentioned, this was made for about $50,000, and it was in the director's house. Uh, his wife was eight months pregnant at the time and was uh, doing a, a home birth, so uh, they had to be quiet. 
Um, and uh, the performances, like almost everything was improv. We get strong performances by Emily Baldoni, uh, Maury Sterling, Nicholas Brendan, who uh, was famous for, for Buffy, um, and uh, Loreen Scafaria, Elizabeth Grayson, Hugo Armstrong, and Lauren Marr, and Alex, uh, I'm having trouble, Man- Manugian, I might have mis mispronounced them. I think the only one that I really remember or recognize from other work was uh, was Nicholas Brendan from uh, from Buffy. We've also got the uh, shaky cam and the blackout cuts. There's all this tight close-ups. Um, I don't know. Does that work for you guys? Do you think that uh, it certainly adds a, a degree of verisimilitude to some films, um, and it kind of works. It, it it works half the time in this film and the other half of the time not so much what do you guys what do you guys think about that i actually thought this was found footage initially it felt like that when i first started watching this i i for some reason thought oh, is this like is this going to be found is this a cloverfield-esque sort of thing and then it sort of was like well is it like the office where there's people in there and they know and so i mean i didn't mind honestly like there was a couple moments where the camera was really shaky and it didn't really seem to do anything for the movie and i don't know if those were just errors or problems i i don't know what they were they just didn't want to redo a scene but there were a few of those moments where the camera was unnecessarily shaky and i didn't know what to make of it other than that this is a hard sort of film to make i mean to shoot i i would imagine i I don't know too much about filmmaking, the sort of the art of it, but I, I, it, I, having that many characters dialoguing in a way that's unprovoked and mumblecore and filming it all the right way seems in, incredibly difficult. So I'm willing to cut cut them some slack on some of the the issues like that. See, but I, mean, I have to I have to comment on the shaky camera thing now. That is a particular uh, style that is is document like a documentary. Uh, you see this in Blair Witch. You see this in Cloverfield. You see this in The Office. But there's all these things have something in common that this one does not have. And that is talking to the camera. The reason why it's shaky is the cameraman's a character. The cameraman's not a character here. Why the hell is it so damn shaky? And why does it keep going in and out with bad, like, oh, it, it was so frustrating. And the thing is, I don't even like Cloverfield, so I... I it made me nauseous in the theater and I had to leave. I eventually watched it on, uh, I think it ended up on Netflix and I was able to sit through it on my TV screen. But when it's that big and moving around, I got so sick to my stomach. So I couldn't even <laughs> sit through it. Um, but the, there's a technique that's used there where the cameraman's a character. And I've actually, before I ever saw any horror movies when I was little and I would make my own movies, I did that. I held a camera and I was the killer and I was a character. And yes, it's shaky, but I'm the murderer. It makes sense if it's shaky. Um, and that's how I got around the fact that I didn't have the know-how to make dollies and, and, and different devices to make the camera work a lot more fluid. Um, so I, I used what I had and put a story to it. They easily could have done that, and they didn't. And, um, and I know it's a style choice, but it bothered me, and it was annoying me throughout. So... <laughs> Now, I think I'm going to take a different uh, perspective on this, because while I don't fully disagree with the, uh, uh, the, what you're saying about it sort of being bothering, I think it's, that's deliberate, and that's the effect that the filmmakers, I think, wanted. Uh, in particular, and most crucially, at the, the penultimate moment when M decides to leave the house, 
they, they need to build up an emotional tension that on the one hand, uh, you know, we, we need to stay in the house because out there is dangerous. We don't know who's out there. We don't know what's out there, the strange metaphysical roulette wheel that they're talking about. So the idea of staying in the house where at least we know it's safe is an attraction. But at the same time, you get this Sartrean notion of hell is other people. I'm stuck in these house with these people and they just keep shouting and they're so mean to each other and they don't, they don't get along. And we're supposed to be friends, but now we're all, we're all, we're all dicks and we're not sure who's who and we can't trust each other and paranoia has ruined our friendships and yada, yada. I just got to get the fuck out of here and i think in order for that decision to make sense you the, the audience had to feel some of that too they had to feel the uh this is unsettling i'm not comfortable here i want to get the hell out and i think the shaky cam and a lot of the the mumble core and the, and the shouting and the talking over and the, the 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 editing and so forth deliberately is trying to create that sensation so when she leaves you don't go what the fuck is she leaving the house it's so stupid it's dangerous out there you want to get out too you understand there's dangers but you can't handle us anymore you just have to get the hell out I agree with you in that moment, uh, and it would have been so much more effective if the camera was stable every other moment, but except for that one. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's the tight close-ups were uh, part of what, what got me as well. It was That's where I felt it was difficult to tell who was talking. And I also, th this film has a continuity error, at least something that I read as a continuity error. Um, after M kills M... Uh, she puts on the sweater that Dead M has. Then she goes out and uh, enjoys the comet with her friends. And then when we see her next, she doesn't have a sweater on. And that in a movie like this, in which you've got multiple M's and you're trying to tell the difference and you're trying to, what is there now a third M? Is that what this film was trying to say? Or was it just a continuity error? Um, the fact that it read like a continuity error in a film that needs to be so specific in order for it to work uh, is a bit of a problem. Um, I, in a somewhat similar vein, I think it's a little annoying to me that M is so incompetent at killing that she has to she kills herself twice and still doesn't succeed. I mean, it's like I can sort of understand maybe screwing it up the first time, but the second time, if you don't get it right, you deserve to be called out by your doppelganger, man. <laughs> Unless all it. the M's chose to stay in that spot and there's like 20 M's around there and then eventually they all run into each other and then the husband has to like, or the boyfriend or whatever he is, has to figure out, we got to make some decisions, you could turn it into a dating show, be like, which M do you want? <laughs> which of your wives do you want to actually stay with? Because <laughs> I don't know, that would be really uncomfortable though. Yeah, you could have like a really cool being John Malkovich shot where, uh, you know, instead of all of the John Malkoviches in the restaurant, there are all of the ends in the living room. That could be fun. But all right. So let's uh, sort of close out and give our final thoughts on this film. We'll score it. Uh, Noah, do you want to go ahead and start? Sure. Uh, as I said in my uh, in my beginning in the beginning of this, I this is I, this is so much better than The Invitation. Um, I you know, I don't like existential films. I like movies that are more mathematical, more science-y, uh, that have that sort of rub, um, as I said earlier. And so, you know, this has all of that. This is a uh, deeply anti-existential movie. I know we've gone through some of the ex existential themes. I just, I'm, I, 
to me, it feels more like uh, it feels more like I'm trying to figure out the flow of what's going on. I'm trying to answer questions when I watch this. I love movies that like that. I I don't need gravitas. I don't need that the the, the attempted depth that we see in the invitation. Um. So yeah, I this a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Um. Just so much better than Martyrs, and I'm so happy that our viewers are giving us these just fantastic uh, films to go over. Uh, you know, this is the second one. I feel like this one just was knocked out of the park. Uh, God, if I'm being honest, I'd probably, like, I this conversation made me score it a little higher than I was going to. Um, but uh, I think with, with all of the conversation about Nicholas Brendan and about the continuity going on in this film and sort of, uh, the uniqueness, sort of the novelty with the comet. I, I got to give this probably a five out of five. Um, I reserve to maybe go a little lower after some of your scores. I need to think, but I, I mean, a five is right where I'm at. I, I feel like it just, it's speaking to me. Uh, anything that has to do with Schrodinger's cat, I, if they do it this well, it's going to be up there. So uh, acting was great. $50,000 budget, fantastic. I, you're hard pressed to find a movie uh, for that budget that 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 does it this well. Uh, as I said earlier, I definitely would have left the house. Uh, I hate Scrabble. I don't want to be the person who stays there and gets caught in other Noah coming over and stabbing this Noah. Um, you know, I, I there's so much going on in this movie that I just, I, it made me question what I would do. You know, I'm one of those people, and I, again, I hate to harp on this. I, I said this earlier. I'm one of those people that, is always questioning the decisions that I've made. I, you know, I, I feel like there's value in questioning them. Uh, the love of fate is something that I think is is an intangible item in the human experience, not something that we should ever really seek. And this is one of those movies that explores that. You should do things differently. Go look at the different houses. Go find the better Noah. Go find the better Jim, you know? Uh, and uh, this movie gives you that opportunity. So, like I said, um, fantastic movie, five out of five, love it. Uh, thank you so much to our viewers for giving us such a fucking great film. Loved it. I think there's there's some some agreement there between you and me. No, I'm not quite as high in the film as you are, uh, but definitely I think that what what I like most about it is sort of the thematic elements. Um, I know that some critics out there are really big on screenplay and and story and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, that's more power to you if that's what you want. But but for me, I want something that that, that makes me sort of have just a, a broader feel of things. So yeah, there may be uh, you know contradictions and plot holes and stuff like that in some movies, and then that's uh, that's never the kind of thing that I'm particularly interested in. I'm, I'm, I don't. I don't want to sit back and rewrite a screenplay as I'm watching the film. You know, I just want to get lost in the world. Um, and this film, I think, you know, uh, does a good job of that. Um, it, it, it's as, as you mentioned for for a budget this small. You know, the I would challenge almost any filmmaker out there to take a budget this small and make a film this good. Uh, um, uh, it, it's it, it's not something I think that can be done easily. You know, I'll, I'll, you throw enough money at a project, you can almost certainly get at least some uh, some pleasure out of the awesome special effects or anything like that. Uh, but when you're working on this much of a shoestring, you really have to rely on your human talent, on your writers and your actors, um, and this pulls it off. And I think we, we do have to remember that ultimately, you know, film and art in general uh, you know, is about human beings and human beings, you know, make decisions and, 
you know, sometimes they regret them, like we've been talking about. Sometimes they have to rethink them. And, you know, we might want to acknowledge, of course, that no doubt some of the people in this, some of the actors have may have made decisions that they regret. And, you know, it, it's easy to, to from the cheap seats, to call out those bad decisions. You know, we could have gotten in, the, in, a, in a gossipy direction here and talked about some of the, the bad behavior of some of the actors. Uh, I think that we're above that as critics. Uh, we're not going to get down there into the TMZ garbage about, you know, whether what this actor did. You know, we, we can just sort of recognize that the, the, the art and the artist are fundamentally two separate things and they never, uh, uh, never the twain shall meet. Uh, and as critics, our job is to, to assess and evaluate the art and, and not the artist. Um, so, uh, I, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back or anything, uh, uh, but I'm glad that no one brought up uh, certain things, which, which if you're in the know, you're, you're aware we might have been able to have been said about one of the stars of this film. Um, but anyway, overall, yes, very pleased with the film, very impressed. I would, I would probably give it four out of five. This was one of those movies that should be really high up there for me, uh, considering I, I hate losing uh, my autonomy. I hate the idea of doppelgangers. Those are always the things that really mess me up. I mean, we we've talked about uh, body snatchers. We've talked about us. We've like this is supposed to be way, way, way up there uh, for my style of film, but it's just not quite enough to scare me. Um, you know, and and it almost is exciting. The idea I could run into a whole bunch of myself. I, it would be really fun. We'd hang out. Maybe we would play Scrabble and, and hang out in in a house somewhere. That might be fun. But um, yeah, the, it, this this whole idea of of running into doppelgangers, this one wasn't as scary to me. It it just seemed like you had your friends and you have multiple of your friends. Maybe you could choose a house that if your friends are not as angry at each other. You know that that's options. You get your same friends. You have all the backstory, all the stuff you need, and you get to choose which ones that are more functional. That's that's a nice option. <laughs> like I think most of us would like be okay with that. So it really wasn't that scary to me. And um, now as far as the technical aspects, I'll give it to it. It didn't have much of a budget. And so obviously that's something to take into account. I did not consider... The fact that it might be purposeful, a lot of the shakiness and a lot of the weird aspects of it, that it might be purposeful. And, and I'm glad that we had the conversation talking about the fact that maybe that was a purposefully done thing. But when I watched it twice, I did not have that impression. I just thought this is amateur and someone needs to just tell the person to stand still with <laughs> the camera or let the camera become a character and have a fourth wall broken a couple of times. So, uh, I don't know. Like, I'm torn on this. I, I'm so in the middle with this. And do I recommend it? Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. If, if I'm talking to someone who likes my style of movie, I would say it would be down at the bottom of my style of movies and things that bring my fears up. Um, but if I'm talking about and comparing it to other horror movies, uh, I, I might give it a little bit higher of a score. So um, I have to stay right mid and be at a three with this. Just be very midway with this film because <laughs> I'm torn. And you know what? I just feel really torn today. Like I feel like there's just two sides of me fighting with each other and I can't make up my mind. So I, I guess that's where, where I've ended. Uh, so <laughs> three out of five for me. Three out of five. Um, yeah, I uh, so... 
I think the most interesting aspect of this film are its ideas, as we've talked about before. And I think it's trying to get the science, at least an interpretation of the science, relatively right. Um, it's it's making some errors in its science. And, of course, it should be noted that physicists often disagree upon interpretations of the multiverse. So the many worlds interpretation is just that, uh, one of many interpretations. Um, but it's the one that, that you know, fiction writers and, and science fiction writers have, have glommed onto in order to make movies like this. And I think its ideas are interesting. I like the idea of, of dealing with different choices and how those different choices affect each other, uh, affect our, our, um, our destiny, so to speak, or our current life. I don't necessarily believe in a destiny, but certainly how the, the confluence of choices have led to the me that I am. And the idea of setting a dinner party movie and saying one night, the choices that you make will change who you are. Um, I think that's an interesting idea, and I'd like to see a movie about that. And this movie is kind of that movie. It's got some problems associated with, uh, I think it's dealing with its world building in very different and weird ways, that its world building is rather inconsistent. Even its treatment of the science is relatively inconsistent. Its performances are fine. Uh, we got We get fairly good performances from these actors, but um, I think they could have benefited from a more well-rounded script. And so uh, overall, I, I'm with Shayra that this is sort of a right down the middle for me. I recommend it, but, you know, uh, on the cusp. Uh, so I give it three out of five, which is just over sort of the, the middle of 2.5, just enough to recommend it. Um, but there are definitely other films out there that are dealing with some similar themes that I think are, are also well worth your time. Um, so that's it for our analysis of coherence. Thank you for watching. If you enjoy what we do here, be sure to like, share, subscribe, uh, hit the bell so you know when we're releasing a new video. We wait, 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 wait a minute. Jim, did you change your tie? No, I've... I... Is that... I, no, I, no, no, no. I've always been... We, we were planning to do red today. Yeah. For the oh. show. Like no, we had I, talked about this and said that we would all shit. do red for our show. So yeah, I thought that it was blue. Like, where wasn't your background blue before, Shayra? No, no, we we no, went red. Oh, wait a minute, it was it was blue. No, and no, weren't you wearing a different shirt? No, I've been wearing this whole time. Gu guys, yeah. I, I I have I've had my glasses on for this whole time. Yeah. I've Garrett, as long as I'm wearing my glasses, glasses, and I can tell you, you, you that the, these things are different. You know, the tie is different. The shirt's different. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Slow down, guys. I, the, I'm, I'm really, really, really confused. Um, can if our viewers are, we need to go back to the beginning of this. And in fact, as soon as this is done recording, I'm gonna go look because something's okay. weird here. Yeah, I mean, go look, but yeah, I think everything's fine. So I uh, like the review. People have to watch more than once to fully understand. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm really confused at this point. Well, let's just tell people, let's just, I mean, we can figure this out afterwards. Like, we don't need to, Yeah. I mean, we don't need to harp on this, you know. I mean, I all of our reviews, like, all of our final thoughts are exactly what we thought about the movie. So, we're done, right? We're done. We're done. Okay, so... 
like, share, subscribe, hit the bell thing, um, and join us every Sunday when we review uh, new horror movies. We're going to be doing uh, Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein next week. So we're actually pairing uh, a horror movie, a classic horror movie, Frankenstein with uh, Boris Karloff and and Young Frankenstein, the Mel Brooks comedy. So we're kind of uh, doing a little bit, something a little bit different. Um, and we hope you enjoy it. And we hope you enjoy us. Uh, join us again next week. Um, have a good night. I thought we were doing Dracula. <laughs>